Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking to journalist and author Lizzie Goodman about a subject near and dear to my heart, indie and rock music from the early 2000s New York scene. Lizzie has written a book about, and just released it, uh, called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011. How's it going today, Lizzie? Going great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, not a problem. Happy to have you on here and to talk about this really wonderful and rich subject. <laughs> it is a wonderful. I agree. It is, and uh, it, there's a there's there's lots to get into. So it's I've I I still I've been writing this book for five years and six years with the proposal and talking about it for a while now, and I'm still not sick of it. So that that's speaks well, I suppose, of the era. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's solid right there, because I know, you know, authors that come on here and they're like, I really don't want to talk about this project anymore. I'm done with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, there can be a fatigue, but I feel, you know, there's, for us, because the book is oral history, there's like so many characters that I feel kind of like, you know, it would take a while to really exhaust this, um, cool. and I'm not there yet, not there yet. Good, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that uh, that proves uh, well for the, the upcoming interview then, so that's Yes, great. indeed, indeed it does. <laughs> Well, we kind of start with the basics. Why did you want to write this book? <sighs> I know it is that is like a good place to start and also like a weirdly hard question to answer. I mean, I think the the idea for the book began where it ends. So I was I went and saw LC Sound System play what was allegedly at that point their final show. Um and then at Madison Square Garden and the Strokes played the same venue around the same time and it was like in the same few days and I was at both shows and they were big deals both of them um it was the spring of 2011 and but there was something that kind of shifted it felt I mean or maybe had shifted and this was sort of a moment of of recognizing that shift had taken place it felt like these artists that I had kind of come up with that had been either my peers or, you know, bands that were part of my era in New York City when I was in my early 20s, and now they were establishment rock stars. There was something kind of big and not in a bad way, but in a kind of like a notable way about them. And it made me feel just journalistically like an awareness of a beginning, middle, and end to that chunk of time between kind of 9-11 and pre-9-11 and then where we were at that point. You know, New York City in the spring of 2011 with these bands that 10 years ago no one would have in some cases didn't exist in the case of LCD and in the case of the Strokes no one would ever have imagined they would have become this you know that they would have been relevant on this level or reached this many people so just sort of journalistically I got interested in the trajectory of how that happened. Yeah, no, I think that's super interesting. And, you know, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the scene, I think there's still important things for them in there as well. But before we kind of get into that, I was wondering if you could kind of paint a picture of this time before, like, the Strokes exploded, but before 9-11, uh, this, yeah. this time between, you know, New York's thriving, you know, 70s scene, the Talking Head, CBGBs, and all that, and this kind of let a lot of people that you talked to considered a dead zone and, like, how all these things kind of mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, I mean, the... The idea of sort of leather jacket, cool rock and roll coming out of New York City ever returning to a period of prominence was seen as laughable um, in the 90s, certainly, um, and and really kind of even in the 80s. I mean, basically, CBGB's that world, the kind of please kill me world, which as probably many of your listeners know, is this great oral history written about that era, and my book is definitely modeled after that, inspired by um, that 
that book and and that sense of their the author's ability to kind of drop you into the mix in that way um that era loomed large for everybody and i i don't think you know there's been a lot of debate about whether the strokes really knew like the legacy they were carrying on like whether they really knew television or something like that and i can tell you from personal experience that they did not but um <laughs> they were not like listening to a bunch of cb's rock in their bedrooms they were listening to nirvana and pearl jam like the rest of us mm-hmm. but i think the those of us who study and those of the people who were studying this at the time who pay attention to kind of the canon of rock history rec- recognized in the Strokes and Interpol and yeah, yeah, yeah as a kind of um, resurgence of this of uh, of something we'd seen before in New York. But that but and this is the key point like the likelihood of those artists that type of sound that type of look the the era that it might have been a throwback to or might have been a, seen as a continuation of nobody was paying attention nobody was craving that no one thought anyone was going to crave that right then what what the industry thought was going to be cool next was dance music you know the prodigy were on the cover of spin in 2000 you know that was like that was and maybe even 2001 i might be getting the date wrong but basically that was where the business sort of thought things were going and rock and roll such as it was existed on the radio in the form of, you know, Puddle of Mud and Hoobastank and these kind of big, bloated, toneless, kind of angry, but not interestingly angry, um, uh, kind of approximations of rock ethos. And this anything tight and serrated and and kind of pretty in its anger or rebellion was not not culturally interesting to people at that point. So these were kind of the likely, um, the least likely bands uh, to the least likely aesthetic to resurge in the pre in the pre nine eleven era of New York. Yeah, no, which I find kind of fascinating. In your introduction to the book, you talk about uh, kind of these people in the beginning, right? And you mentioned like James Murphy was a frustrated indie sound guy with a wallet chain, which is, you know, kind of hilarious. That's one of the biggest musicians now today that's, you know, selling out festivals and stuff for him to make a new album and that you knew, uh, one of the guitars from the strokes, you know, Nick, you worked with him. Um, what was that like for you? Like being then kind of looking back on it now? I mean, you know, you, they say that you have the least perspective on your own life, and I think that's proven true for me in attempting to kind of characterize, like, how I felt then versus how I feel now. I mean, one of the things I tried to get at in the introduction that you're referencing is how little awareness you have in the moment of the fact of, of the reality that what you're living through may become sort of uh, something other people are interested in later. Like, nobody knows that. You know, you don't you're not like rolling into 2A to hang out with your friend Nick, which was me, you know, like, and thinking, wow, someday I'm probably going to want to remember what I was like wearing right now so that I can (laughs) document it for posterity. Like you don't, part of the beauty of having been present in, in, for this, for this particular time for me, but for all of us in our lives is like that you don't know how it's going to look later. So it kind of, and to know it would, would in some ways be an advantage, but would mostly be a disadvantage because it would rob you of your ability to actually be there. Like what was awesome about those early years, the and I'm talking before the strokes blew up, was just 
going with my friends to see, like, yeah, I knew this guy, Nick, who had this band in New York, and I was in college in Philadelphia, and, like, he had friends in bands, and I was meeting people in bands, and band people were fun to hang out with, and, like, this music was amazing and and kind of invigorating, and, and it felt like a kind of communal soundtrack to a sense of, and this is the title of the essay, but, you know, youth and abandon, a sense of kind of, this was the music that had showed up for our small feeling world of, you know, 20 year old kids who were trying to figure ourselves out and kind of have this, this urban freedom that we had all come from wherever we'd come from to chase. And it was like those kids who were playing guitar were just like us. They weren't rock stars. They were like their role in it was to play the guitar, and our each of us had a role in it. My role in it to, was, you know, to aspire to write about it, and somebody else's role in it was to like go out and DJ it, and their, you know, Nick's role was to play guitar mm-hmm. in it. Um, but you kind of shared the thing that you were all doing, and the idea that any, and that was what you were all sort of like serving in a weird way, and the idea that it would become a thing that would then get written about in magazines and newspapers, or that, you know, I would have been seeing the Strokes play in Philadelphia in a small club, and then a year later they would be playing Saturday Night Live, like that was just impossible to imagine, Um, genuinely just like unfathomable, and I think that's the glue. A lot of these bands, you mentioned James Murphy, or you mentioned Julian, or whatever, like those guys didn't really know each other but they had in common that that thing that like they you're kind of laboring in the dark until you're not um and so that's what i think about when i look back is kind of it's it just strikes me how little awareness it was possible to have of the fact that i would ever be looking back (laughs) in that way no i find that fascinating actually did you it's really hard to like now post that and with all the mythos and the narratives kind of surrounding around these these people and, and what they mean to so many more people outside of New York and that scene now. How do you kind of in writing this book, how did you find distance from that mythos and how did you find uh, a way to kind of counterbalance your personal connection to it as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the distance was actually hard. I, I wound up like I had, I moved out of the city. I moved upstate um, to kind of a small, like rental house, not in the woods exactly, but in like a really pretty small town, two hours north of the city, not near, not, and not like a town you've heard of, you know, not like yeah. Woodstock or I mean, it's not that far from a lot of those places, but just not, not where I would see other people like me, basically, um, or or where I would run into someone who had you know, played keyboards on tour with Interpol at some point, you know, sort of like I needed to be, I found that I was not able to focus on capturing this, on seeing this period of time and telling this story with anything like clarity uh, because while I was in New York City, it was impossible to do it. It was like too much of the current incarnation of New York City in, inserting asserting itself upon me every morning. And when I would walk my dogs, I would be like, oh, my God, I've had three conversations with people. And even if I don't know them, it's like there's New York is does, New York doesn't let you alone, you know, with your thoughts. And so I needed that was huge. Like I had to kind of leave in order to stay connected to the New York that I was actually trying to document. Yeah. Um and then in terms of my own like objectivity and sort of pers- the personal the fact that this is a personal story for me and kind of how to balance that it was hard i mean i think the the what what worked about it was that there was so much time like i i spent 
like I said, it took six years from the inception of the idea to the publication of the book. And in that period of time, I wrote a proposal and then I sold the book. And then, you know, there were probably five years of real writing. But two and a half of those writing years even, or three years of those writing years, were really just reporting. Like, I just was doing hundreds of interviews and kind of going through the transcripts and combing them and, like, definitely, like, technically or theoretically, like, writing and assembling the thing that you're now reading, but not really, you know? I was kind of not. I was kind of, like, just still talking and just still mulling. And I think that period of time was almost, like, it created a buffer between my own personal history of this era and then the, when I actually sat down to start really formulating a story, I'd been in journalist mode for three years, you know, and I had the benefit of that. So I think that really helped. You get a lot of interviews in this book, and I'm wondering, how were people when you talked to them, just kind of in a general sense, were they excited for the project? Were they kind of hesitant? Were they worried? Like, what was the the kind of mutual feelings? I mean, it really is, and I know this is like feels like a little bit of a cop out, but it really was. It really did depend. Like yeah. it was, it, it was different for everybody. Some people were very sort of naturally forthcoming and excited and supportive from day one, and some people were wary. Um, and I mean, nobody. It's it's really amazing that this is true, but it is. Nobody was mean or, you know, sort of like, I don't know, like critical in advance of the project. Like everybody, even the wary ones were, were sort of supportive of me doing it, but not necessarily wanting to be involved themselves. Like there was resistance from a couple of people. Um, But I think what changed was, first of all, the the category A of of person that I'm describing, like there were so many who just were like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Like people who've come in and said incredibly personal, like just really showed up for these interviews and for the for kind of participating and documenting this period of time, like showed up in really amazingly vulnerable ways. Like a lot of those people were on board from like day one, like Albert or Paul Banks or my friend Ryan Gentles or like, I mean, a lot of people were just like there like early. Um, And I think when that happens, it also changes, it affects, it's a domino effect, right? Like it affects how other artists, see who are their peers or bandmates or whatever, like feel about the project. So a lot of it was, I felt really gratified by that, that people had mixed responses to, to, to whether they wanted to participate in this. But once a couple, once there were the right kind of number of people on board, it was kind of, um, it was like gang mentality. It was like the good kind of peer pressure, I think. I think that's good. Was there uh, anybody that you couldn't get in for an interview that you really wanted to talk to? Yeah, Carlos D is my great white whale for oh. this book. He was he said, you know, I chased him forever to the point of him having to quite politely but firmly tell me to stop emailing him. Um, but he just, you know, I love it though. I kind of, you know, it was it drove me nuts at the time because I'm such a completist and I wanted, you know, I wanted him in there and he's such a great character and such a great sort of such a great persona from this time and and also a great musician and artist obviously and in one of the most important bands of the era but and so like obviously journalistically I was like well you belong in here but now that it's done I kind of respect the fact that he I mean he committed so hard to the rock star life when he was 
playing in Interpol and touring with Interpol and being Carlos D um, in with a capital C and a capital D for mm-hmm. sure. And then, you know, now that he's not in the band and he has left music and isn't doing that anymore, it's like he's very firmly not doing that anymore. There's a kind of commitment to – I respect – the continuity of his commitment to the thing that he's doing. Like he committed all the way to Interpol and now he's committed all the way to not Interpol. And I kind of get it, you know? So that's, that's the one that got away for me, but so it is. (laughs) That's cool. You've got a whole other uh, slew of them. So I think that that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. We're okay in the end. We're okay. in the end. (laughs) Um, I'm interested in why you, you had mentioned obviously the, the, the kind of oral history masterpiece, please kill me about the punk movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm interested in why you chose to make this an oral history instead of a more traditional narrative um, and kind of the constraints of that for you. Well, I mean, the, the sort of idea generating part, like, I mean, I said, obviously that there was not, as I said earlier, that the idea came in, in the sort of context of having seen these two shows at Madison Square Garden, but that idea was very unformed at that point. It was sort of just like, oh, there's a story here. Okay, good to know. Like, what do I do about this? I have no idea. And it took a year to kind of figure out how to, what, how to, how to try to tell it. And one of the big conflicts when I was facing that down, just that question of how do I tackle this, was how do you get, you know, 200 characters to all have a say like there is no when you start to try and do a piece of journalism you have to one of the first things you do is or a piece of writing of any kind is you kind of think about point of view like whose point of view is this whose story is this and in this case it was like oh it's hundreds of people's stories (laughs) you know it's new york is the central character that's what i ended up kind of uh describing ascribing to this process that helped me stay focused. New York is a central character and all these people are serving that story of New York during this era. But you can't write, you couldn't write this as prose. Like you couldn't write this as, how would you do that? Like you could go talk to all these people and then it would be my voice and me with my point of view kind of interweaving their stories and having to fact check whether it really is true that, you know, person A was wearing a brown suit to their first rehearsal when person B says that it was really a blue suit. And like, this, this, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm making, that's obviously like not a very significant distinction, yeah. but the point being that the inherently, if your goal is to drop someone in to, to give them a portal to a period of time that was like living and breathing and experiential and sensory. And that that is the, that's the message you're trying to convey, not a linear rendition of what happened. You need in, in, you need the internal contradictions of how life actually gets lived, of how people's memories vary and how there is no such thing as like fact really yeah. when it comes to, to memory. And so oral history is the form that allows you to access that. So I knew pretty early in the proposal process that it needed to be an oral history. Pulling that off though is a completely different story because bad oral histories are like incredibly bad. A bad piece of narrative sort of linear journalism is like a B. A bad oral history is like you want to, you just want to die. Like it's so <laughs> awkward and horrifying and like clunky and brutal. So the the goal was to make it sing and the execution was uh, labor intensive to say the least. No, I, I can understand that. Well, I'm glad you were able to compile it. I, I Having transcribed several uh, dozens of interviews, I can only imagine going through all this and how much work that must have been. 
Yeah, um, a lot of work, a lot of transcribing. <laughs> no, I, I get that. Um, it was worth it. It was worth it. Well, good, yeah. well, good. And it also, you know, it kind of serves as a primary document, too, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, that was the goal, sort of like, let's get the definitive, let's get everybody on the record, you know, like, let's gather it, um, like an archivist. Yeah, that's yeah. part of it, too, for sure. Um, there are plenty of juicy bits and divergent stories, as you mentioned in here, which add a lot of texture to it. I'm wondering if there was anything you were kind of completely blown away by that when you found it out, some story or some some bit of information that you were just like, whoa. I think pretty much everything in the DFA LCD sound system side of the story was was you know was was compelling to me in a way that, and often just surprising and like, oh my God, wow. Um, Like when James does ecstasy for the first time and they play Tomorrow Never Knows and he's like, okay, my life has been changed and now I can communicate with all these British people properly and like now I'm going to start DFA and then I'm going to start LCD Sound System. Like just these sort of (laughs) hilariously dramatic um, rock and roll moments that fuel the the sort of, that allow the, the sort of, turf to be sown with seeds for what's going to, for the fact that we're still living in an era where LCD sound system is selling out stadiums, you know, it's crazy that all, like you can see in the book and in the reporting of the book, I could see the seeds of that being sown in like tiny gross bars in Manhattan. And it's just weird. It's just awesome. You can see those kind of the lineage of that. But, and I think what I was going to say also is that those, that those guys were, were not known to me. Like I knew as obviously I knew the Strokes guys and I had, I didn't know them personally as well, but I had done stories with Interpol. I'd done stories with Yeah, Like those are all bands that I, as a journalist and as a fan, as a fan first and then a journalist after or later had gotten to know a little bit that we were not strangers to each other. Whereas I had never met James Murphy. I didn't know anything about the origin of DFA. I didn't know who Tim Goldsworthy, his former producing partner and like co-founder of DFA was. I didn't know who any of these people were. It was not my world. It wasn't really my music. And it was sort of like, so getting to go and kind of play sleuth and uncover all of that was incredibly exciting. And and the story is just amazing and dramatic and heartbreaking and like, you know, elating and heartbreaking and all the good shit that we want, you know, sorry, I probably can't say that on air, but you know what I mean? Like very, (laughs) very, very compelling in, in all of the themes that make for a good story. And so getting to discover that was like, wow, this is like what, this is what's fun about journalism before you even start writing. No, definitely. And one of the things I appreciate about this book is even if you're not familiar with the subject matter or the music itself, uh, there's kind of this universality of experience here of what, what, how things kind of play out and how people can connect to it on that level. And also just this idea of everyone has a golden age and mm-hmm. these cycles of music and cycles of nostalgia and that even this music here will come back in some way. And I, I want to hear from you. What do you think the music of now 2017 is owed by this period? And what do you think uh, people in 25 or 50 years will be saying about this period? Mm. Whew. That's a, it's a loaded know, question, I know. Yeah, that's like a dissertation subject right there. <laughs> um, I think, I think I'll, you know, for the first part, the legacy, the sort of the debt owed, and I like thinking about it that way, to this period for current musicians, depends obviously on who you're talking to, but I would say that if you're, I mean, for most for most young artists who are, whatever, 22 right now, like this is their 
sort of these are the bands that they like grew up on. They were like children on these bands, like the Killers, Kings of Leon, Strokes, whatever. Like I when when those when you go to those shows, like you see it's really wild because it just doesn't feel like those guys are that old yet, but there's sort of this generational spread um from, you know, from 45-year-old people who now have a, whatever five or six-year-old kids who are who are there with them to young people who would have been, you know, in elementary school and then in, in teenagers when this was kind of kicking off or developed when this was all happening, taking place. So the span is pretty impressive. And I think, but what I was going to say about the actual influence is I think those musicians, so whether you like the Strokes or Interpol or LCD or not, like if you are a young musician right now, like that there's going to be an opinion to have about that because that was the cool music when you were a kid. And so yeah. maybe you hate those bands, but you're going to have a, you're going to have thoughts on why you hate them. And that is, as we know in media, almost the same as loving them. You know, it's like there's, it's in terms of this is in the water. It's in the sort of genetics of the next generation of, of musicians yeah. that we're seeing coming up. And the other major thing about that is that it's not going to happen. It cannot, they were the last of their era. Like the, this is the last time that the structure, the paradigm of rock stardom as we've known it for since Elvis basically can will will unfold in the way will will be applied in the way that it was with the strokes where in other words where there's like a small group of people in a kind of part in a part of an urban place where it's been sort of forgotten even though it's New York City it's not cool right then for that kind of music and it's not it's rent is relatively affordable and like there's the right sort of the right ingredients to create a potential scene and these people meet each other in an analog way and then they have a bond over sound or style or it's all happening in real life, you know? And then they start in a basement playing a chord and like the whole, just the whole narrative of that seems so quaint now Mm -hmm. because of the internet, obviously. So I think there is an extra thread of kind of, or an extra potency, an extra layer to the retrospective nostalgic kind of like, uh, sepia-tonedness of this period of time from for current artists too because even though it wasn't that long ago, it was an eternity ago and it's not coming back in yeah. terms of like the, the telescoping of time that we've seen happen through the digital revolution. Um, so that's big. And then in terms of 50 years from now, man, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I hope that people are, I hope that I believe as someone who devoted six years of her life to working on this, obviously I believe that this music is important and culturally relevant. Like it's a, it's a snap. I think of the book as a cultural history, not a musical history. Yeah. It's a culture history. And this is the soundtrack for that era of human life. Um, so I hope it stands the test of time, but I guess we'll just have to like, you know, we'll make a, a return to that conversation date in 50 years and see how it's feeling. Definitely. I can only hope that like my grandkids are like at a, po- a college party and there's this like, you know, bearded hipster in the corner and he doesn't like LCD sound system and he's that guy, you know, like the guy that doesn't like the Beatles. That, that's what I hope, <laughs> totally. you know? I so hope that guy is bothering your grandchildren at some <laughs> point. Too. That would be such a victory. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Lizzie, I have like a hundred more questions to ask, but I can't keep you here all day. I, I will end with one final one, though. Sure. Um, uh, what are you reading right now and what else are you working on? Wow, what am I reading right now? Well, I'm supposed to be writing a profile of Jennifer Egan. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've just picked up her Manhattan beach. Like there's a, you know, her novel that's coming out after 
quite a, a long wait for those of us who love her work um, in October. So I'm really psyched to read that. Um, and I'd also been reading Lauren Groff's The Fates and the Furies. Um, is that what it's called? I'm suddenly having like a That is, I'm that is indeed. That. I think oh, you're thank right. God. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's one of those, I was a classics and English major. So whenever anything's got a, a, anything like a kind of Greek myth reference point in the title, it immediately gets scrambled in my brain. And yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. Am I being tested on this? Like what's happening? Um, so both of those. So I've been reading some like really, you know, some serious uh, power fiction. I would call it power fiction. And then just everything else has been politics man you yeah. know i just read i i try not to but i'm i've been i just read i'm reading a lot of political journalism right now and just trying to kind of like stay with that um to the extent that i can survive it yeah. and uh that's been intense and then what i'm working on is that profile and i just had a piece on andy murray and sexism and women's tennis that came out in l in the current issue the september issue and that i took me almost two years to report and write that story because just a lot of moving parts. And so I'm really proud of that. Um, I'm thinking about next projects for sure, book wise and other stuff and work. I'm out in Hollywood right now, actually kind of talking to producers about film and TV adaptations for meet me in the bathroom. So that's also happening potentially. So it's kind of a lot of irons in the fire, but um, you know, it's one thing at a time. One of the things I learned from writing this is, which I should have known already, but it's just like you get up, you make coffee, you go to your desk and you start and then you take a break and you go back. You know, <laughs> and like if you do that for long enough, like things get done. So that's kind of where I am in terms of how to handle it all. Well, good. You sound like you got a lot of exciting things on the horizon and I'm looking yeah. forward to more of it. So that's fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank, well, you, thank so. you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you about oh, all this. It was a pleasure to talk reading. to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting this book out. <laughs> My pleasure. That was author Lizzie Goodman, the author of Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 through 2011. A uh, pretty great oral history, if I do say so myself. And that's our show, The Writer's Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., every Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and on Sundays at 1 p.m. All of our interview programming here at WRBH can be found on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. Until next time, I'm David Benedetto.